I normally wait for the choir to get down and for that bumper video to go, but I'm not waiting this morning because you're not going to wait for me. So join me, open up your copy of God's Word, and join me in the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, there are some in the pew back there in front of you. If you don't own one, please take that one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have that. If you're using that pew Bible, we're going to be on page 8 in the very front. Genesis chapter 8 this morning. We've been talking about having a worldview over the last several weeks. Last week, I took on the task of going back through seven sermons in order to teach the eighth sermon, so I taught eight sermons last week in one time. I'm not going to take that on this week. I'm just taking on the simple task of reviewing the entire Old Testament today, so <laughs> no problem whatsoever, so you guys buckle in and let's, let's go. When we talk about a worldview and we're talking about having a biblical worldview, where does one develop a biblical worldview? Where would someone begin to develop a biblical worldview? The Bible. Crazy idea, right? So we want to go to the Bible because the Bible is God's authoritative word. It is his sufficient word in our life. It is the lens through which we should view life. And so we go to the Bible in order to develop a biblical worldview. And as we begin to get uh, comfortable with the Bible, we find that the Bible teaches one story. This is something that blows people away. They, they, they think, I've heard the story of David, and I heard the story of Moses, I heard the story of Joseph, and I heard a story of uh, Mary and Jesus and all that, but they're all a bunch of different stories. And when you begin to understand that the Bible doesn't teach a bunch of different stories, the Bible really only teaches one story, it begins to make more sense. The Bible was written over a period of 1,400 years, 66 books comprised together, written by over 40 authors, three different languages, multiple continents, and they all come together perfectly telling one story. And that story is of the kingdom of God. The Bible is the story of God's kingdom. When Jesus began his ministry, he did so with these words. He said, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. When Jesus taught his disciples the model prayer, we all know this model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught the disciples what a true disciple looked like, and he told them in Matthew chapter 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. In that same message, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of God. Jesus has taught us to pray for and to seek after the kingdom of God. But what exactly is that? What exactly is the kingdom of God? Is it simply a state of mind or is it a literal place? Who's part of the kingdom? How do you become a part of the kingdom? And what are the benefits of being a part of this kingdom? Over the last three weeks of our series, Own the Vision, we're going to try to answer these questions. What is the kingdom of God? How do you become a part of the kingdom of God? What are the benefits of being a part of the kingdom of God? In the broadest terms, the kingdom of God is just simply the rule of the eternal sovereign God over the universe. Just in a broadest sense and broadest terms, what is the kingdom of God? It is the eternal sovereign God who is ruling over the universe. 
God, who has created all things, is the supreme ruler of all things. But we need to answer three questions here. Is this kingdom a literal place? And the question, or the answer to that question is yes. God's kingdom is a literal place. We see it in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Garden of Eden, a literal place where God has created it. We see it again in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, a literal kingdom that he has established. It is a literal place. But is it also not also a spiritual place? The answer to that is also yes. It is both a literal place and it is a spiritual place. When Jesus was on earth, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his time, came to him and said, show us this kingdom that you're the king of. Show us the kingdom. And to that, Jesus replied, the kingdom that is coming is not such with signs that I could point to it and say, there it is, or there it is, but instead, the kingdom is standing in your midst. The kingdom is a literal place. We're going to talk about this. The kingdom is also a spiritual place. But finally, I want you to hear this. The kingdom is an eternal place. God had a plan to build a kingdom, and that kingdom will reign forever. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of God is a literal place, the kingdom of God is a spiritual place, and the kingdom of God is an eternal place. Has it come yet, or is it yet to come? Is God's kingdom here? Has it already come and we missed it, or is it, we, are we still waiting on it? The answer to that question, of course, is that the kingdom of God has come, the kingdom of God is here, and the kingdom of God, we are still waiting on it to be completed. You say, hold up, time out. It can't be all three. I'm afraid it can, and I'm glad to say that it is. The kingdom of God has come, the kingdom of God currently is, and what it is going to become, it has not yet become yet, but one day we look forward to what it will be one day. Through our series, we've not only defined that the kingdom of God is where the eternal sovereign God reigns over all things, but we've further defined the kingdom of God as God's people, in God's place, enjoying God's presence and God's provision while living under God's providence. God's people, God's place, God's presence, God's provision, God's providence. We see this clearly laid out in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when God created all things and then he created the garden and he placed man in the garden. God created all things. He created Adam and Eve in his image. They were his image bearers. He created all of creation and then he said, let us make man in our own image. We will make them in our own image, male and female. And they bore the image of God. They were God's people. And he put them in a very special place. He put them in the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect place. And in that garden, they shared God's presence. The Bible says he walked with them in the cool of the day. A perfect place with perfect people in perfect harmony with God. God's people, God's place, God's presence. In that garden, God provided everything they needed. He had provided life for them. He had breathed life into them. And he said, look at this garden. You can eat from any tree in this garden. Look at everything that I've provided for you. You can have everything. The tree of life is there. You continue to eat from the tree of life. You will live forever. Everything that they needed, God provided. God's people, God's place, God's presence, God's provision. But God also had providence in the garden. He said, you can eat from any tree except for the one tree 
the, knowledge of tree, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat from that tree, you will experience a lack of goodness. You will experience evil. And I do not want that for you. And God's providence is his protective care over us. And so in the garden, we see God's people in God's place, with God's presence, God's provision, and God's providence in their lives. We see it as God intended his kingdom to be, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But it doesn't take us long to mess that place up, does it? We get to chapter 3, and everything falls apart. We get to chapter 3, and God's kingdom is corrupted because Adam and Eve doubt God. They doubt his character, and they begin to distrust his provision and his providence. They sin against him, and they plunge all of humanity and creation into the curse of sin. And as we've seen, sin separates, sin spoils, and sin spreads. That sin ruined their relationship with God. It separated them from God. It ruined the relationship that they had with one another, that perfect relationship. Their marriage was hurt. It ruined the relationship of their children. It ruined their relationship with life. Sin separated, sin spoiled, and sin spread. And therefore, in chapter 3, in this kingdom that God created, we see that they are no longer bearing the image of God. They're no longer living in the place of God. They're no longer living in the presence of God. And they are no longer un enjoying unfettered access to his provisions. But knowing that man was going to do this, knowing that man was going to fall, do you suppose that God created his kingdom knowing that it would be corrupted and he would be okay with that and he would allow for his kingdom to remain corrupted forever? Do you suppose for a moment that a sovereign, almighty, all-powerful God would create a kingdom that he would know would collapse and have no plan to put it back in place? The answer, of course, is no. God has no intention of leaving his creation in the state we are currently in forever. God is not impotent so that he cannot defeat an enemy. God is not so uh, lacking in power that someone can come and steal his glory away forever. He is not unable to go against the enemy. In fact, he is stronger than the one he has created who rebelled against him and dragged a third of the angels with him. The creator of the universe is greater than the ruler of this world today. He is greater than the prince of the power of the air. He is greater than Satan, and he will overcome, and his kingdom will reign, and his kingdom will be restored to just the way he intends it to be. There's so much to explore in that last statement. There's so much to explore in this understanding that God is going to take what he intended to be and restore it back. We'll see that in a couple weeks when we come back and we look at Revelation chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22. As we look at how God plays out history, as he redeems mankind and he restores his creation. When all things that were made by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus will be placed under his feet. And when all the nations of the world will worship him. History is heading somewhere. History is not in an endless cycle. History is linear and it is heading towards the King of kings and the Lord of lords reigning upon his throne. 
in his kingdom. We've already seen glimpses of his redemption of man. We've already seen redemptions of his restoration of his kingdom as we've gone through the first few chapters in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we saw the first hint of the gospel when God is cursing Satan for having led the rebellion. He tells him that there will be enmity between his seed and the seed of the woman and that her seed will crush his head after she, he has struck her heel. It's a clear picture of what Christ will do to Satan. We see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Adam and Eve are naked. They are afraid. They are ashamed. And so they try to cover themselves. And God says, you can't cover yourself. But he makes a covering for them, a sacrifice for them to make them presentable to him. In chapter 4, we see that there are offerings that are acceptable to God, and we see that there are offerings that are not acceptable to God. In chapter 5, we see so-and-so lived and he died. So-and-so lived and he died. The wages of sin is death. Satan told Adam and Eve, you're not surely going to die. God didn't really tell you that. Chapter 5 tells us that the wages of sin is death, and it proves it over and over again. But right in the middle of the chapter, we meet somebody by the name of Enoch, and Enoch didn't die. By God's grace, he was taken to heaven. We see in the middle of all of this, God's plan. We get to Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7, and it says that man's heart was inclined towards evil all the time, and that God repented that he had ever created them. And he said, judgment is coming upon the world. And he decided to destroy the world with a flood. Man sinned, God rightly brought judgment. But in the midst of that, do you remember what he did? He called on one man, Noah, build an ark, put your family in it, and proclaim that anybody who will trust and get in that ark will be saved. And for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, Noah builds the ark, he proclaims, get in the ark with me, God brings judgment, and only those that are in the ark are spared. God had a plan before the very beginning of the world. He unveils it through his scripture. We get to chapter 9, and there is a rainbow that God puts out. And he says, Noah, I promise I will never destroy the earth in such a fashion before. And that rainbow reminds us that we live in a period of grace, that God one day will judge the earth again. We read that in Psalm 103 today. But that God is right now providing a period of grace where we can trust in him. We get to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, all the people that have now repopulated the earth after the flood all get together and say, you know what, let's make a name for ourselves and let's build a tower that will take us all the way up to heaven. And God wants us to know you cannot build a tower tall enough to get to heaven. You can't be religious enough. You can't be good enough on your own. You don't need to come to me. I've come down to you. And he scatters them and he changes their languages. Now that is simply the early chapters of the Bible. And my question to us is this. Why doesn't the Bible end right there? God created... Man sinned, God righteously judges, end of story. If it ended there, God would be completely just and righteous to do so. God creates, 
Man sins, God justly condemns. But the Bible doesn't end there. As a matter of fact, that's only 11 chapters into the Bible. We've got a whole lot more to go. 65 and two-thirds books out of 66. So why doesn't it end there? It doesn't end there because of God's character. It doesn't end there because of God's goodness. It doesn't end there because of God's graciousness. Because the story is not over. Because God has set in place a plan to rescue his creation, a plan to restore his creation, a plan to redeem lost mankind, and he put that plan in place before he ever created any of it. He has established this plan through his son, Jesus Christ. And one day he will restore this earth. One day he will reign. But for right now, we'll talk about this more in detail in a couple weeks, but right now, just imagine God's people living in God's place with God's presence, God's provision, under God's providence. Can you imagine what a place that will be? No more tear, no more sin, no more shame, no more suffering, seeing Jesus face to face, living in the garden, access to the tree of life, Jesus Christ reigning, all the nations of the world worshiping him. That's what it's going to be one day. Y'all should be a little bit more excited about that. But what of today? What about now? We can see the kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2. We can see the kingdom in Revelation 21 and 22. But what about Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 19? What about now? What about human history now? What's going on in our current age? And the answer is still the kingdom of God. Because the question becomes, is God still ruling? Is God still reigning? Because we look at our world and we see evil. We look at our world and we see suffering. We look at our world and we see all types of things going wrong. And the question comes, is God not powerful? Is he not still on his throne? Is he not still in control? Within the earthly kingdom of God, we understand that God has given human beings the ability, the right to choose to choose to love him and to choose to serve him. He's also given us the right to choose not to love him and not to serve him, to choose to rebel against him. And man has chosen to rebel against him, and that rebellion has brought sin and suffering into our world, and yet, hear me, God is still on his throne. My sin has not dethroned God from his rightful place. Our sin collectively has not knocked him off his throne throne. And again, in the broadest terms, the kingdom of God is the rule of an eternal sovereign God over his creation. But in very practical terms, in terms that we need to understand today, the kingdom of God is where God's people have chosen to allow God to remain on his throne. Not because we knock him off of it, but because we sometimes choose to replace ourselves with him. And the kingdom of God is where I choose to allow God to have his rightful place in my life. It's a choice that he's allowed us to make. And God mediates his rule on the earth through mankind. Today, I want us to walk through the Old Testament. Don't freak out. We'll get there. And I want us to see how God tells this story of redemption through the Old Testament. And then next week, we'll come back and we'll see how he picks it up in the New Testament. 
Old Covenant and New Covenant. Genesis chapter 12 is where I've asked you to turn this morning. If you're capable, would you stand with me this morning? Genesis chapter 12, just three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand it. Thank you, God, that you are sovereign and still on your throne. Thank you that we can trust in your kingdom. And one day we know it will be established just as you intend it to be. But Father, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for loving us. Father, our prayer is that we would surrender our lives and let you reign in our lives even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Alistair Begg, a pastor that I love to listen to preach, such a great theologian, describes the verses that we've read this morning this way. He says, this is the text that the rest of the Bible expounds. This text, he says, is what the rest of the Bible is all about. If you can understand these verses, you understand the whole story of the Bible. In fact, if you can't understand these verses, you can't understand the whole story of the Bible. This is the text that the rest of the Bible expounds. We must come to grips with the promises that God made to a man named Abram in these verses if we are to have a biblical worldview. And the promises that God makes to Abram are partially fulfilled in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and they are ultimately fulfilled in the universal application of the gospel in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Let me say that again because it's a big mouthful. The promises that God makes here are partially fulfilled in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and they are completely or ultimately fulfilled in the universal application of the gospel in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Partially fulfilled Old Testament, completely fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So three things I want us to see this morning. I want us to see God's kingdom promised, I want us to see God's kingdom partial and God's kingdom prophesied. If you can understand those three things, you get a grasp of the Old Testament. God's kingdom promised, God's kingdom partial, God's kingdom prophesied. So let's talk about God's kingdom promised just for a moment. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God making these promises to Abraham is a defining moment in human history. It is a moment when God begins to call out for himself a particular people to represent him on the earth. This is a group of people who are supposed to represent him, to bear his image before the world, before other nations, a people who are supposed to be different, a people who are supposed to be set apart, a people who are supposed to serve as a blessing to the other nations. In the Old Testament, we see this nation have the name of Israel, and they had a patriarch by the name of Abraham. When we meet him here in Genesis chapter 12, his name has not yet been changed to Abraham. His name yet is Abram. And God reached down into a pagan land, into a pagan family, and called out a man for himself named Abram. And God focused on this one man, a worshiper of false gods, 
And he says, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave the Ur of Chaldees, and I want you to go because I have a land for you. I have a promise for you. And in complete sovereign grace, God went to an idolater, someone who did not deserve him coming to him. In his complete sovereign grace, God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And in fact, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And God came to this man and gave him three promises. Quickly, I want us to see these three promises. I don't have time to completely unpack this, but I want you to see these three promises because when you begin to grasp this, you see the whole picture of God's promises that were partially fulfilled in the Old Testament that are completely fulfilled in the New. The three promises are a land, a great nation, and a blessing. He promised him a land. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Leave Ur and go to this land. This promise is further fulfilled in Genesis chapter 13 when God says, hey, walk around and wherever your foot lands, that is the land that I'm going to give you. In Genesis chapter 15, we see the land defined geographically. The Bible lays out this land that God has promised to Abram and his descendants, a land which we've come to know as what? Hello? The promised land. All right, you with me? Promised land. God has promised this land to him. And after being delivered from slavery in Egypt for 400 years... The nation of Israel goes and they take possession of this land eventually, but they never take complete possession of the land. All the land that God promised them, and he laid it out and said, all of this is yours. The nation of Israel has never completely occupied that land, owned that land. It's not been theirs. And so has God been unfaithful to his promise? No. There's only one explanation in my estimation why the nation of Israel still exists, number one, and why they still exist where they are, number two, and his name is God. And they are there, and God has partially completed that promise, but later, when we get to the book of Revelation, we will see that God completely fulfills this promise. There is a land that they promise, but he also promises them descendants, verse 2. He promises them descendants. He says, I'll make you a great nation, a great people. And as God promises this to Abram, you may remember Abram's 75 years old and he has no children. It's carried again in Genesis chapter 12 and and the promise is amplified in Genesis chapter 17 where he says, I'm going to make you not only a great nation, but I'll make nations and kings from you. And then flip with me if you still have your Bible open. Genesis chapter 15, just for a second. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6, Then he believed in the Lord, and, it, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
Abraham said, God, I, I don't mean to be argumentative with you. You keep telling me that I'm going to be a great nation. You keep telling me that my descendants are going to outnumber the stars and the sands on the sea, but I don't even have, I don't have a child that's my own. How is this possible? And he says, I promise you, you will have a child of your own, and all these nations will come from him. And verse 6 says, and Abraham did what? Believed him. And what did God do? He reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham placed his faith in the promise of God, and God said, you are right with me. This is before the law was ever put into place. This is before circumcision ever came into place. This is before the sacrificial came into place. It was simply Abraham believed, placed his faith, and God said, you are right with me. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Always, from Genesis to Revelation. It has never changed. And God has promised a great blessing to Abraham. And he said, you will have this son. But Abraham and Sarah still have doubts. As a matter of fact, God makes them wait 25 more years before that special child is born. And in the meantime, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, I've got a plan. Let's help God out a little bit. I have a maidservant named Hagar. Why don't you take her and have a child with her, and then we'll have an heir. Maybe God just needs our help a little bit. And so Abraham went, okay. Has a child with Hagar. That child's name is Ishmael. Later on, Sarah has a child, the child of promise. His name is Isaac. The children of Isaac are the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. The children of Ishmael are the Arab nations. That's something up. We are still suffering the consequences today of two people not being patient enough to wait on the promises of God. And so Isaac is this one who has been promised. And in Isaac we find the partial fulfillment because he becomes the one who leads to the nation of Israel. We have God's promise. We have God's people. The third thing, land, people, blessing. Bless you. <laughs> God promised to bless Abraham. Matter of fact, God, God said, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. But then he said this, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. What a wonderful promise. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. We've seen God's people. We've seen God's place. Here we have God's provision. And Abraham was clearly blessed by God. But how are all the nations of the world blessed through Abraham? How is it that Abraham and his descendants would become a blessing to all the world? How does that come into play? Because if you trace the lineage of Abraham, you'll end up at a man born in a little town called Bethlehem. Jesus Christ. And all the nations of the world will be given access to the gospel. The second Adam will come for all nations of the world. The ark will come for all who would jump into it through the line of Abraham. But Abraham was blessed in order to be a blessing. He and his nation were set apart, not because they were better than anyone, but because they were supposed to be used as instruments of God to bless the rest of the world. They were supposed to take what God had told them and share it with everybody, but they became greedy and they kept it to themselves and they rejected other nations. God's promise. God's kingdom promised. But I also want you to see this, God's kingdom partial. 
the promises that God makes to Abraham are partially fulfilled in the nation of Israel. They're completely fulfilled in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. We've met Abraham. We've met his son Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older. Jacob is the younger. Esau is the one who deserves the birthright. Jacob is the one who swindles him out of his birthright. The one God loved, the other God hated. And God chose the younger over the older. God chose the one that shouldn't have in order to give. And Jacob becomes, in Genesis chapter 35, they, God changes his name to Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. These 12 sons are the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was a boy by the name of Joseph. Happened to be Israel's favorite. Joseph knew this. Joseph kept having dreams that his other brothers were bowing down to him. He shared those dreams with his older brothers. Not a good plan, younger brothers, to share with your older brother that you think one day they'll bow down to you. It's not a good plan. The brothers intended to kill him and finally change their minds, sell him off into slavery. He's sold into slavery into Egypt. There he goes to Potiphar's house, rises to prominence as Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him. He gets thrown in jail. There, once again, he is able to interpret dreams, and through interpreting dreams, he's able to interpret a dream that the Pharaoh has, and through God's providence, he rises to position second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. That dream had something to do with a famine, and, God, and, and Joseph led Egypt to stockpile supplies so that when the famine came and all the nations around them had no food, they came to Egypt for food, including the 11 brothers of Joseph who had sold him into slavery. Through that, God shows favor on the nation of Israel. The Pharaoh says, have, have your brothers, Joseph, come and live in the land of Goshen, my, the greatest area of my nation. Israel goes to Egypt. They live there. That Pharaoh dies. Joseph dies. Another Pharaoh comes up who does not know Joseph, who does not care about the Israelites. He begins to count noses, and he says, there's so many of them, we'll not keep them down, and he puts them into slavery. And for 400 years, they are slaves. Then we meet a man by the name of Moses, because the people keep crying out to God, God, we're your people. God, deliver us. God, deliver us. And God sends a deliverer by the name of Moses. He goes to the Pharaoh and says, let God's people free. And, Moses, and the Pharaoh says, nope. Plague after plague come until the final plague comes. The final plague is the death of the firstborn. Every firstborn in the nation of Egypt is going to die. But God has a plan in place. He says, Moses, go to the people. Tell them that they'll take a perfect lamb and they'll sacrifice that lamb and they'll take the blood and they'll spread it over the doorposts of their, their homes and on the lintels of their homes. When the death angel comes, he will see that you are covered by my blood, you are mine, and he will pass over you. The death angel comes. All the firstborn in the nation are killed except for those of the Jewish nations. And Pharaoh says, get out. Take your people and get out. You've all seen the Ten Commandments. You've all seen Cecil D. Maville. What's his name? That guy. Um, they take him out. Don't get your theology, by the way, from Hollywood, okay? Get your theology from right here. They flee. We get, they get to the Red Sea, and the Pharaoh changes his mind, and God parts the Red Sea, delivers them, and crushes the enemy. They get to the other side of the Red Sea, and God sends Moses up onto a mountain, Mount Sinai, and there he gives him a law, and he says, this law represents my character. This is what my people are supposed to look like, and it calls them out to be distinct, 
This nation of people that God has called who serve one God, very unique amongst the people of that time. This people who have a law, who have dietary habits, they're called out to be a distinct people. And they head towards the land that God had promised to Abraham, the promised land. They get there, but they get to Kadesh Barnea, and they said, uh, we need to send spies into the land. They send 10 spies into the land. They all come back and say the exact same thing. It's exactly what God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a gorgeous place. The fruit is so big, they had two guys carrying, carrying one bushel of grapes. Those are some big grapes. If it takes two men to carry a bushel of grapes... That's a big bunch of grapes. They said, it's all perfect. It's just what God said. But eight of them said, but there's also some really big people in there, and we can't take it. Two people said, God says it's ours. What are we waiting for? Let's go take it. But because of their disobedience, because of their own faithful, unfaithfulness, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until that unfaithful generation passes away. But God never leaves their side. He provides for them the whole time. He raises up a new leader, Joshua, 40 years later. Joshua leads them to take the promised land. They conquer the promised land, but not completely. They leave some people there. The people begin to look around the people around them, and they say, we want to be like those people. And Judges, the book of Judges says there were no kings in Israel at the time, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was the most chaotic time in human history. God rose up other people called kings, The people wanted a king. God said, you don't want a king. No, we want a king. He said, I am your king. No, we want one we can see. You don't want an earthly king. He's going to take advantage of you. He's going to take advantage of you. We want a king. So he gave him Saul. And Saul served for 50 years, and then he gave him David. And then David passed, and he gave him Solomon. And during Solomon's reign, the temple was built. There was great growth in the nation, but Solomon had foreign wives, and he allowed the worship of foreign gods to come into the nation of Israel. And after his death, the nation of Israel divided into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The southern kingdom continued to be ruled by people from the lineage of David for 336 years, because God had promised David that someone from his line would always sit on the throne of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel went through a succession of kings, but ultimately they both were exiled. They were both carried off into exile because they were disobedient to God, First Kings and First and Second Chronicles. So in the Old Testament, we see God's place, a promised land. We see God's provision along the way. Remember when they were wandering around the wilderness and they got thirsty? Did God allow them to die of thirst? He provided water from a rock. When they got hungry, what did God do? He provided manna. He gave them a a nation. He gave them a land of milk and honey. He gave them cities they didn't build, Joshua chapter 24, and vineyards they didn't plant. He gave them a priesthood. One of the tribes, the tribe of Levi, he said, these are people who are going to mediate between me and you. They're going to represent you to me. And he gave them a sacrificial system. These sacrifices will cover your sin for a period of time. We see God's people in God's place. We see God's provision, and we see God's presence. God never left his people. We say they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. They never wandered a day in their lives. Because every day before them went a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, and it was Jesus, God's presence in their place. We get to Exodus chapter 25, and God tells them, build me a tabernacle, build me a tent, build me a sanctuary so that I can reside amongst my people. And do it exactly as I say. So they build a tabernacle. 
Later on, David wants to build a temple for God, and God says, no, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build a house for you, a house that is everlasting. And he allows Solomon, his son, to build a temple in the city of Jerusalem that has courtyards. It has a holy place, and it has the holy of holies separated by a veil, and in the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest is allowed to go in there to offer the sacrifice for the sin of the nation. It represented God's presence amongst his people. We see God's providence. God gave him the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, do this and it will go well for you. Joshua chapter 1, he says, here's the law. Don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right, because if you do, it'll go badly. God says, my care for you is here is what you should be doing. People in God's place, in God's provision. I know I'm out of time. God's kingdom promised. God's kingdom partial. We see that in the nation of Israel. But quickly, I want you to see this. God's kingdom prophesied. Because the rest of the Old Testament is prophecy. And there are four different types of prophecy that we can quickly see. The first one is this, just warning. It is people that God sent to the nations of Israel and to Judah to say, we are acting unbecoming of God, we are breaking God's covenant, and unless we turn, judgment is coming. Some of the prophets are just simply warning the people, we've got to change the way we live. Some of the prophets were judgment. God brought judgment, they were exiled into foreign lands, and the prophets came and said, don't be shaking your head at God, he told you exactly what was going to happen. We are in the state we're in because we were disobedient to God. There are also those that were called messianic prophets. These are prophets who said there is a deliverer who is coming. As bad as it is, God is going to send a deliverer to restore his kingdom. The Messiah is coming. And then finally, there's eschatological prophecy or end-time prophecy. Eschatology is the study of the end times. How does God culminate all of human history? And we read about this in books of Daniel and Ezekiel, where God says he's sending a deliverer, and one day he will put everything back the way it was. Let me close with this. Jeremiah 31 says this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They will not teach each other again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember it no more. God is saying there's a time when everybody will know who I am, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am the sovereign king. And all of this points us, all of the Old Testament points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because our sin problem has a solution, and the solution is the cross. The Old Testament points us to it. Our lives look back at it. God creates, man rebels, God judges, should be the end of the story. But it's not. God creates... Man sins, God judges, and then God saves. 
and God redeems and God restores because he is a great God and because he is a good God. And before he ever created any of it, he put a plan in place to save you and to save me. In the broadest sense of the term, the kingdom of God is eternal sovereign God reigning over his kingdom. But I want to ask you a practical question today. Is he reigning in your life? Is he the king? Is he in charge? Is he on the throne? Does he make the decisions? Or is somebody else there? Is something else there? Are you in the rightful place of God? Numbers 14, verse 21 says, I live and all the earth will be filled with God's glory. There is coming a day when God will fill the earth with his glory, when everyone will know exactly who he is, when there will be no doubt that he is king of kings and lord of lords, when every single knee will bow because they cannot choose not to any longer. But when that day comes, you won't have a choice. God, in his infinite grace and mercy, allows for us to choose today whether we will serve ourselves or we will serve him. But the choice we make today has eternal consequences. Choose yourself this day whom you will serve, either the gods of this world or the God of the universe. The Bible tells one story. It's an incredible story. And it's the story of God's kingdom as he intended it to be, as it has been compromised, and as it one day will be. The question is, is he reigning in your heart today? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your book is just so amazing. Father, human beings could not write this book. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. We couldn't put 1,400 years 40 authors, three languages on three different continents together and tell one seamless story. But you can and you have. Father, thank you but for, before you ever created anything, you put a plan in place. Before the foundation of the world, your son was sacrificed for our, for our sin. And Father, I just pray today that we would just marvel in your grace and in your goodness. You know, there's three ways you can view your life. One way is to look at your life and say, I'm just part of a chaotic chance universe headed towards oblivion and there's no real meaning or purpose. That's where our world tells us we are. It's just chance. There's no meaning in life. You're just a bunch of molecules that have come together. And what a hopeless existence. Another way to look at life is to say that you're just held in the grip of a blind, impersonal force called fate. Nobody knows what's going to happen. It's just fate. But there's a third way that you can look at your life, and this is the way that the Bible teaches us we should. And that's this, that you are a child of a creator who created you with his own hands, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who created you in his image, who loves you so much that he desires to spend forever with you. And even when you don't deserve his love, he loves you. And even when you don't deserve his mercy, he pours it on. And even when you don't deserve his grace, he lavishes it on us. And he loved you so much that before you ever sinned against him, 
he had a plan in place to forgive your sin so that you could spend forever with him in his perfect kingdom. I pray that you see yourself in that way today because that's how God sees you. That's the truth. The invitation this morning is this. Let's just praise God for being a God with a plan and a purpose. And if you see yourself as just being part of a chaotic world or just driven by fate, then I want to tell you, God has a plan and a purpose for you and he loves you. Father, you take this time of invitation. Lord, I pray if there's those that want to hear more about this, that they would just come down and say, Pastor, can you tell me more about Jesus Christ? I don't want to be chaotic. I, I don't want to be left up to fate anymore. God has a plan from the universe. I need to hear about it because he loves me that much. Father, I just pray that we would worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.